Earlier this summer, my family and I decided to have some fun, so we went to a movie up in Cedar Creek, and we liked going to Cedar Creek because if you go to the Cedar Creek movie theaters, they have the dream lounge chairs, right? I don't know if you ever experienced this. If you haven't, you need to, because the great thing about the dream lounge chairs is the movie, if the movie is lousy, you can just take a nap and you get refreshed that way. And so uh, we went to the movie and we're watching, uh, I think it was Spider-Man, and we're sitting there in the dream lounge chairs. Uh, but what, the thing about the Dream Lounge Chairs Theater is it's not general admission. So you have a ticket and you have a specific seat and so you have to find that. And so we went and um, went to find our seats and so we go up into the theater area and as we went up to the theater area, uh, all of a sudden I saw our seats are up in the back, kind of in the middle, and I'm going in the hallway to our seats and there's this railing that's kind of in the middle of the hallway. And our seats are like over there. And I said, well, this is the stupidest thing ever. Well, who would put a railing in the middle of the hallway? So we had to go back down all the way around, walk over the other way to get to our seats. So the movie starts, we're in our seats, we're enjoying it. And without fail, it always happens with me. An hour in, I have to go to the restroom, right? I could like not drink for a week, but if I go to a movie, hour in, I have to go to the restroom. And so I sit there and I say, you know, I'm not going to walk all the way down and around. I'm just going to go hop that railing. And so I get up out of my dream lounger, and now uh, you have to know that before we went to the movie theater, I did a bunch of exercises, and I was out working in the yard, and so I'm not as spry as I thought I was, and so I get up on the railing, and I put my leg over, and all of a sudden, as my leg goes to the top part of that railing, I think I'm like pulling a hammy. (laughs) Every muscle in my right leg just locks up, and so I'm on this railing, and I can't get off of it. And then it became really clear to me why the railing's there. Because when I looked at the screen, I saw a silhouette of me on the railing (laughs) pulling up. And the reason they put that railing there is because the projector's there and they don't want you to walk in the way of the projector because you'll be on the screen. So I'm on this railing having this hamstring issue and I look and all of a sudden people are starting to look back of like, who's the fool up on the railing? And all I know is I got to get off this railing, even if it means I got to break my neck, but I got to get off this railing now. And so I lunged myself over this railing. I went down around, and I knew by the time I even hit the bathroom, my phone is going to be lighting up with texts from my family saying, Don't do that again. <laughs> there are certain barriers in life that are good railings to protect you from things like that. There's certain things, of railings that protect you from safety. Certain times barriers are good. But today in God's word, we're going to look at a barrier that God said is not good. In fact, God takes this barrier by the power of his cross and he destroys it. And we're in a new series today called The Amazing Christian, where we're going through the book of Ephesians. And I invite you to open the book of Ephesians as we look at what this barrier is that God tears down by his cross. And it's in Ephesians chapter 2. And so I invite you to open to Ephesians chapter 2. If you're using the Bible that's in our sanctuary here, I invite you to uh, go to page 1037. 1037. Uh, Ephesians toward the back of the book. We're going to be looking in chapter 2. And in our text today, what we're going to see is that God takes and divides walls between us, barriers between us, and he creates a whole new humanity, a whole new creation. And when he does that, it glorifies him. It glorifies who he is and 
the rightful creator gets to unite his creation and it brings him joy and pleasure. And what we're going to see in this text today is that there's three ways that God creates this new humanity. Three ways that God creates this new humanity. First, he gives us a new status. Then he gives us a new peace. And then he gives us a new citizenship. So let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. A new status. Let's read 11 and 12. So then, it says, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Now, Paul in this text is referring to these people called the Gentiles, who we're going to talk, to, talk about in a minute. Gentiles were different than the Jewish people. See, what's going on in this time, you need to understand this Jewish-Gentile dilemma. Jesus entered into the world through a Jewish context. He was a Jewish rabbi. He came through the Jewish people. And God chose the Jewish people to bring Jesus through way back when he selected Abraham. God met Abraham in Genesis, uh, and in Genesis he established the nation of Israel, and through that nation would be the ancestors to the promised Messiah, which is Jesus Christ. And so throughout the Jewish religion, the Jewish line, you have this promise of Messiah coming, and you have these laws and these rites and these ceremonies, these festivals that would celebrate and help you connect to the living God through this Jewish uh, religion and way. That was what God set up. Now, when Jesus came in to the world uh, as God coming as a form of a human, he came in and he fulfilled all these promises in the Jewish way, but he also wanted us, instead of, wanted humans, instead of following the Jewish way like you're used to, to begin following him because he was the fulfillment of all those laws. So he set up this new following this new uh, way, that that's what it's called in the book of Acts, the following Christ. So you had people who were Jewish people their whole life, Jesus comes on the scene, and then they put their faith in Christ, and now they're Jewish Christians. Well, you also had people who were not part of the Jewish faith. They were Gentiles. And as they saw Jesus, as they interacted with the disciples in the new church, they gave their life to Jesus and began following him. So then you had Gentile Christians. And it created this confusion because the Jewish people were like, do we stick with all of our Jewish laws and follow Jesus? Or do we do something totally different? And what about those Gentile people? Do they have to start doing our Jewish laws? And, and the church at the time had a lot of confusion to it. It was really messy. We didn't know what to do with this thing. So you had Jewish people and Gentile people. And to add to the confusion, Jewish people and Gentile people did not like each other. There was a lot of racism. There was a lot of hatred. There are things about each other, and now God is starting to bring them together as one. And I love what it says in verse 11. It says, so then, he's writing to the Gentiles, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. One time. Something's about to happen. Something is going to take place. They're not staying in that spot. They're gonna, something is going to take place. If you look at what Paul talks about these Gentiles, he uses a lot of labels, because in that time, these people were reduced to a category. They were reduced to words. Words like excluded. Words like foreigner. Words like without hope. What happens when a human being 
all of a sudden is no longer looked at as a human being, but is looked at as a category, looked at as a word. It reduces their humanity and tears them down, and God does not want that. God is calling his people to do something else. He's calling his people to look at humanity as made in his image. Looking at humanity regardless of their race, regardless of their background, regardless of who they are, to look at them as the image of God. That's what God's calling his people to do. And these Gentile believers lived in these categories, and that's probably how they felt. Look at verse 12. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope, without God in the world. You know, these Gentile believers probably felt a lot of different things. I'm guessing they probably felt homeless. You know, they were excluded from the citizenship of the Jewish people. The Jewish people uh, knew that God was their God and they were following it, and these Gentiles weren't part of that. They didn't follow the rules. They didn't follow the regulations. They weren't part of the festivals. They weren't part of the the, uh, um, ceremonies. They lived outside that covenant. It probably made them feel homeless. They probably also felt friendless. You know, it says in 2 Chronicles 27 and James 2.23 that when God met with Abraham and set up the nation of Israel, it said Abraham was God's friend. He was the friend of God. And there was this, throughout time, this friendship that God had with his people And the Gentiles probably knew every time those words were spoken that they were outside of that, that they were no longer part of that. They probably felt Christless. Whereas the Jewish uh, people went through and grew in knowledge, they were always taught about Messiah, who's going to come. There will be this one who will take away the sin of the world. And the Gentile people probably thought, we're outside of that. We don't have that because we're not part of the Jewish crowd. So they probably felt Christless which means with all that, they probably felt hopeless, as it says there, without hope. No savior, no home, no promise. They were left with no real future under a Roman oppression with no hope for what would happen to them. That's where these people were. And then all of a sudden, Paul comes in and reminds them that if you give your life to Jesus Christ, it all changes. And like a tidal wave crashing on a cliff, Paul shatters this hopeless, Christless, friendless, homeless condition that these Gentile believers were in. And he said, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, he brings you into the family of God and he gives you all the benefits that he gives every single one of his kids. And he says, this is who you are because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, this is really similar to last week when we looked at all the things that we were apart from God. And then in verse 4 of chapter 2, it says, but God, who is rich in mercy. Paul does the same thing here again. He lists all these things that you are separated. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near. He takes and he shifts this whole status with these Gentile people. You see the shift. They go from homeless to being citizens as part of a new city. They go from friendlessness, uh, being friendless to members of God's family. They go from being Christless to now it says they are in Christ. And they go from being hopeless to now having a glorious, glorious future. And what I love here is when you look at this, I love what they said. This outcast, despised, rejected people called the Gentiles are what, it says in verse 13, They are brought near to God. Isn't that what God does with us? 
He brings us near to himself. And when God brings you near to himself, it changes everything. It changes your life. It changes your status. It changes who you are. They've been brought into the Christian family. They have a new identity. So they have a new status. Also, they have a new peace. Look at verse 14. It says, For he is our peace, referring to Jesus, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. In his flesh. Notice that he does not bring peace. It's not, it's not what it says. It says he is our peace. He is our peace. The blood of Jesus not only saves us, but the blood of Jesus unifies all people under God. As one commentator put it, he has not only, uh, he has not only brought peace to us, but he has become peace in us. God brings peace by radically transforming our hearts and lives, and then through that we are extended uh, this peace to other people around us. Peace is the main theme in this section. The word occurs four times in verse 12, 15, and 17. And it's really good for us to understand what he means when he says peace. Because when we say peace, there's a lot of different things flying in our head. We have these ideas of this peaceful feeling. And and part of that is peace. That's one element of it. But biblical peace is more than just a feeling of tranquility and rest. Biblical peace is different. Biblical peace carries with it this idea of harmony. This idea of unification, it's unifying us and bringing us into harmony with God and harmony with one another. Also, with the peace in the Bible carries this idea of uh, order and wholeness to our lives, that we can easily feel out of sorts, we can feel disordered, we can feel pulled apart. And because of what Christ does in our lives, we are brought together, there's a, a wholeness that happens And he wants to take that wholeness and then allow that to spread on to groups that perhaps we don't look at kindly, groups that we are hostile to, to come together with a, and be with these people with a lack of battle, with a lack of conflict and a sense of love and security. That's the peace that he brings. And in verse 14, Paul goes on to tell us three ways that Christ became our peace and produces peace among his people. First, he says that he made both groups one. Look at verse 14. For he is our peace who made both groups one. One of the sure tell signs that God is moving is when you have two enemies who are now brought into friendship with one another. When you have two people who were at odds and don't like each other, and now they are together. You see, what Jesus did with these Jewish people and these Gentile people, he didn't just make them acquaintances. He didn't just make them neighbors. He didn't just make them friends. He made them family. He tore everything down to the point where now they are brothers and sisters in God's family, in Christ. He recreated a whole new family, saying, all this is torn down. Speaking of torn down, this is the second thing he did uh, in B. Not only did he make both groups one, but he tore down this dividing wall of hostility, he says. And he's making a reference to something that we need to know here, that the audience that he's speaking to would know exactly what he's talking about. You see, the Jewish temple where the Jewish people would go to worship God was divided. 
It had courts in it. And so there was certain places Gentiles were allowed to come into, that outer area is called the Gentile court, but inside where that arrow is pointing to, that was the Jewish courtyard. Only Jewish people could go there. You weren't allowed in closer to God if you were a Gentile. It had this visible idea that Gentiles were only allowed to go so far into God. You weren't allowed to be brought near. That's why he's using this language that they get to be brought near. It's a whole picture idea that they have now, that the Gentiles now, because of Christ, that wall is torn down. And Paul calls it the wall of hostility, that this whole Jewish way of living is now being torn down and I'm setting up a whole new family. I'm setting up a whole new humanity. I'm setting up a whole new identity where people, regardless of race and ethnicity, can come close to me and close to my people. And then he says, number three, that he made no effect of the law. Look at verse 15. He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations. This is one of the most confusing parts of this. But what he's saying here is this, and this is what Bible experts that I've re- read this week are saying, uh, confirm. What he's saying is these Jewish laws and rites and ceremonies that the Jewish people had, the Jewish people used that to separate themselves from these Gentile people. We're the ones that follow the law. We're the ones that do the ceremonies. We're the ones that do what God told us to do. And now what Paul is saying is those laws are now powerless to separate. They can no longer be used. The Jewish people cannot use those laws for excuses. That in Christ, he fulfilled all those laws. So now following Jesus means all the walls can come down. And he calls it the hostility. Look at what he did in the second part of verse 15. So that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He created in himself this place where all racial and ethnic divisions are torn down. There's a new humanity. No longer divided, but now one. No longer apart, but now unified. Look at verse 16. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. Again, he's talking about there this hostility. He's referring to the laws that were used in a way to separate. In Paul's terms, he uses things like tore down, no effect, put to death. All those regulations that they tried to follow as Jewish people that separated the Gentiles are now being torn apart and down so that the new humanity can come. All are done away with because of what Jesus Christ did, and that's what Paul boldly proclaims. Jesus entered into the life of both of these groups, and in doing so, in a way, ruined the old system forever, because that's what Jesus likes to do. When he enters into our lives, he changes us and makes us new, and the old ways of living are gone. And he, Paul is declaring this. Look in verse 17. One of the, I love this verse. It says, he came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away. Who do you think he's referring to? Gentiles, because he was Jewish. He proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. The gospel and what Jesus was doing was proclaimed to both groups. And when he proclaimed it to both groups, near and far, what was the goal? Look at verse 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit, one unified body, to the Father. 
Because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, now the divisions between these two ethnic groups are torn down so that they can come together in one unified spirit and worship God. Worship the true living God. Because God wants his kids unified. God wants his children together. God sees his new humanity as coming together. And when that happens here on earth, it's a little taste of heaven when it says we're going to be together with every tribe, every nation, every tongue, worshiping him. Absolutely no divisions whatsoever. And that's God's heart. That's his will. That's his way. I would say that I didn't grow up in a home that was outwardly racist. I mean, we had some relatives that would say some racist jokes, and we probably had some relatives who were racist, but it wasn't like indoctrinated in us, this hatred of other races. However, what I would say is, because of probably the area we live and where we grew up, it wasn't that we looked poorly at another race. The problem was we didn't look at all at other races. We didn't even acknowledge there was this existence of another race. And it wasn't an intentional thing. It was just kind of how we lived. And I'm guessing that if you grew up, and especially in a Christian home in the Midwest, um, where there wasn't a lot of racial diversity, you were probably, by tradition, taught the same thing. And it wasn't maybe, and maybe there was places where you were taught open, uh, flat-out racism. That's a reality. But maybe there's also this place where it was just like this indifference, where it wasn't even recognized or acknowledged. See, we have that experience as Caucasian people, but when you are part of a different race outside of the Caucasian world, you don't have that choice to just not have it be there. It's there all the time. You are constantly felt that you are different if you live in this area. And that's just what we see. I remember that... um, when I was a youth pastor at Woodlands Church and from 2000 to 2007, one of the student leaders on my youth ministry team was a student who was from Milwaukee and he was attending UWSP and his name was Will. And Will was an African-American. And Will was our worship leader for our youth band and so I did a lot of things with Will as, our, as the youth pastor. We'd go to music stores and get supplies. We'd go to restaurants. We'd hang out. We'd do a lot of things hanging out together. And I remember watching like everywhere we went, people stared at Will because he was probably at that time one of the few African-Americans in Stevens Point, and people would stare at him, and they'd look at him. I remember one time we were going into Applebee's, and there was this family coming out, and the little kids in the family stopped, and they just stared, because they never saw that, and then this one kid just started pointing and laughing, and as we got in, Will looked at me and said, you know, a lot of times when I'm here, I feel like a freak show, and I saw and I felt what that was like through his eyes, through his experience, and I could leave the experience, but he couldn't. And it was kind of like as one author said that in my heart what was going on is the author said, you don't really, truly, really care about another race like black people until you care about a black person. And it wasn't until I saw the pain in my friend, Will, that my eyes were opened up to this whole issue of racial injustice and thought, man, there's got to be something else, and God has something so much bigger than the traditional ways that we set up. You know, there's a concert pianist who had two pianos on stage, and the one piano was tuned perfectly. 
And on this piano, he played this concerto that was amazing. It was full of different sounds, and how he could make that happen was just unbelievable. But then this other piano he had was tuned to just one note. Every key was the same exact note. And he took the same piece of music, the same concerto on this piano, and he played it on this one. And it sounded absolutely horrible because it was just one note. But you know what? It's safer to play on this piano because there's no risk. He could mess up the concerto and no one would ever know because it was all the same note. And I think sometimes what we do is we stay in our safe areas. We stay in our safe comfort zones because there's no risk. And to reach out beyond another race and to welcome them into our family, the family of God, that takes risk. That takes the possibility of rejection. That takes, there could be awkwardness here but we have to lean into the discomfort because of what Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ is calling us to walk out his gospel in those places where we lean into. And you know what he does? He gives us a whole new citizenship. Look at verses 19 to 22. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens. You see the change now from excluded to included but fellow citizens and saints and members of God's household. He's declaring this to this uh, ethnic group that was cast off, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being together, uh, being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, guess what? In my church... In my family are all sorts of different races and all are welcomed. He's saying you come in. This is church. Verses 19 to 22 is describing the church of Jesus Christ. It's describing what Jesus came to establish that he said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You are in God's family. And he's encouraging us to live out his heart of unifying his family underneath the community of faith because of what Jesus Christ has done. Because of Jesus and what he did for us, setting us free from our sin, he did that with others too and brings us into this community of faith. For years, the Iron Curtain separated communist countries and non-communist countries in Eastern Europe. And the Iron Curtain, which was actually just this fence, separated these two populations in Germany and what is now the Czech Republic. Get this. It also separated two populations of red deer that were living in the forests uh, in those places. And when the government officials began to dismantle that fence and take down the Iron Curtain in 1989 when the Berlin Wall fell, the physical barrier between the two countries and between the two deer populations were removed. It was taken out. But when wildlife biologists began to study this deer herd living uh, in 2002, they were quickly realizing that the deer living in Germany were not merging over into the Czech Republic, and the deer in Czech Republic were not merging over to the deer herd in Germany. In other words, both populations of deer were still behaving like the fence was intact. And one deer in particular became the microcosm and the source of this study uh, of the entire population. They named her Anya. And her movements in the forests of East Germany were tracked for several years by a GPS collar and a scientist named Marco Heinrich. 
And during this time she was monitored, Anya's location was tracked more than 11,000 times in Germany, but not one single time in the Czech Republic. The border of, she was tracked at the border of the two countries several times, but she never, ever crossed. And here's two things that are, are wild about Anya and this tracking. This deer, first of all, was born 18 years after the fence came down, and she still didn't go over there. Second, the land that was formerly where the fence laid on, the fences were turned down, the guard towers were turned down, and now it was this thriving nature preserve. It was a perfect haven. They set it up perfectly to be the perfect home for this kind of deer herd, and yet they never, ever crossed and went in there. Marco Heinrich and his team of biologists have come up with several explanations for this strange behavior. They said most of all is that deer travel across traditional trails. For example, the ones that are passed down through the generations by modeling and repetition. And it's possible that Anya and the other members of her herd simply have not ventured out to the beaten path. You know what I see in the Church of Jesus Christ today? We are pinged into and tuned into more of our traditional paths of our origin and families than we are the newness and creation that Jesus Christ called us to. And sometimes when we do that, we allow racial barriers to get in the way of what God wants to do. And we tune our hearts more towards our natural inclination instead of God's will and what he has for us as a church people. And we become like this deer herd that can never go away. And you know what I want to tell you, church? God's calling us to something better. God is calling us to something better. When you just follow your traditional path of family and origin, you are missing out on the new life that Jesus Christ has for you. And when you submit yourself to Jesus' life and his ways, you open yourself up to the way God intended. And in that, God brings us together no racial divisions, no divides. And we actually acknowledge another race exists and we call them brother and sister. So how do we respond to this? I have two things I want us to do. In this area, this whole area of racial and ethnic unity, I encourage you, first of all, to ask God to search your heart and repent. If there's anything in there that's causing a stiff arm, if there's anything that you were raised with in your background, if there's anything there that you did in your past, Paul the apostle was the greatest probably racist we see in the New Testament and God reworked his heart and now he's writing this. God can rework your heart and write something new but you have to be honest with him. So I encourage you to take this verse, Psalm 139, 23 to 24 where it says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Read that verse often. Pray it back to God. Say, God, is there anything in my heart that's offensive to you? If there's anything in my heart that I should repent of, I want to bow down and submit and repent. I encourage you to do that regularly because we are broken people who screw up a lot. And so go back to God in this habit and, and making yourself new, being forgiven by him. And when you, he brings stuff up, repent and allow his forgiveness and his mercy to wash over you and make you new. And the second thing we need to do is we need to grow in community and grow in Christ. When you grow in Christ, you are reformed. 
and to the thinking and the image of Jesus Christ. And by things like uh, engaging in your relationship with Jesus Christ, if you've begun a relationship with Jesus, just like a physical getting in shape physically, you have to get in shape spiritually, and you have to be proactive and put effort towards engaging and and growing. It's a key thing. And so to help us do that here, I want us to talk about how we are going to ask you to grow in Christ this year at Crossview Church. And when we talk about year, we're talking the ministry year, September to May. We have a pathway that we want you to follow. And in our heart's desire is that every person that calls Crossview Church their home would follow this pathway. And so I want to walk uh, through this. Because if we decide not to grow, if we decide not to engage in our relationship, we will be like one piano playing one note over and over and over. But God's calling us to something greater. He's calling us something better. And so here's the pathway. Number one, I encourage you to come to worship on Sunday morning. And for some of you in the stage of life you're in, or maybe you're new here, um, maybe there's things going on externally, that's all you can do right now. And if that's all you can do, do it well, but come here to worship. Engage God, encounter God here in this place. And I don't know what's going on in all of your lives. I just don't. So maybe right now that's where you just need to start. You need to make that what you can do. The second thing is I would encourage you to engage in worship but start serving somewhere. Start getting involved. You see, we have this idea that to grow spiritually, we need more knowledge. Give me knowledge, give me knowledge. And knowledge isn't a bad thing. But I will guarantee you to grow spiritually, what you need more than knowledge is you need to be serving. You need to be interacting with other people. I'm going to talk more about serving in a minute because it applies directly to this passage we looked at. But that next step would be to serve. We want you to be serving here. And if you have been coming here to Crossview for a year, year and a half, and you're still not engaged serving anywhere, I would encourage you to get involved and start serving. You will grow. The second thing is, the third thing is worship serving and Tuesdays at Crossview. Maybe you find your place of service, you're coming here to worship, and now I love the fact that on Tuesdays we're going to kick off this thing, you just come here and you can connect with God's people and grow in knowledge. On the 24th, we're starting a, a series on Tuesdays and Cross you called Christianity Explored. And whether you've been a Christian for 100 years or a Christian for three days, you're going to get something out of it because it talks about what Christianity is all about. And so I encourage you to check out Tuesdays at Crossview if that's what you want to do to grow. And finally, worship, serving, and being involved in a life group or DNA group. And we're going to talk a lot more about those two things later on after January. We're still forming this, but just by basic definition, a life group is a group of people who gather around the Bible, who are men and women gathering around the Bible to grow and create a place of care, create a place of community, and grow in God's word and knowledge. It takes this big church and makes it small. A DNA group is a group that is for intensive discipleship. If you really want to grow deeper in your relationship with Christ, it's same gendered and it's only three people. So it's three men or three women and we have a curriculum that we'll give you and you'll walk through it and it'll take you deeper. It's for those that want to really, really grow in their connection with God. And it's designed to do that in that uh, safe place of same gendered with small people. More on that is coming, but this is the pathway we want you to consider if you're going to make Crossview your home. Now, I want to talk about serving today a little bit because serving connects with what we're talking about here in Ephesians chapter 2. And so if you had a bulletin given to you, inside the bulletin there's a serving card I'd love for you to pull out. Maybe you've been coming here to Crossview and you haven't been serving anywhere. I want to encourage you to consider getting involved and taking that next step, step two, in serving somewhere. 
Think about serving and giving. We have areas on that card where you can serve. Maybe it's in Sunday morning ministries like being an usher or getting in the cafe team or doing something like that. Maybe it's getting into Apex or with our children's ministry. You know what I love the fact is the children at Crossview Church and the students at Crossview Church are absolutely amazing people. And you know what, church? We have a window about like that where we have an opportunity to share Christ with them in a way where they can live for Christ the rest of their days. We have a unique opportunity that's now that's going to disappear like that in the lives of these kids. And so we have a unique opportunity to pour into them and teach them God's will and his ways. And they are so amazing. They are so awesome. I believe they are worth two hours a month of our time. I believe that. And if you're not serving anywhere, I want to encourage you, maybe you should give two hours a month to take this faith, this amazing gospel message, and place it in the hearts of the next generation to change lives forever. Serving is so key and important. I want to talk about two aspects really, really quick. One, serving can be the most fulfilling thing ever. When you finally have those moments where you see you're making a difference, when you are serving in the coffee bar and someone comes in looking depressed and then you're able to have a conversation with them that lifts their heart, there's times in serving that is very fulfilling. But the reality is there's times in serving where it's not. There's times in serving where it's frustrating. There's times where the communication isn't set up right or the schedule isn't here or something isn't organized right and it's just an exercise in frustration. You know, I've been involved in ministries and churches for 30 years and you know what I can tell you? It's consistently like that. There's times where you'll find a church that has serving all figured out perfectly where the communication is set and the system is beautiful and it's running perfect and people come and everything's set up and it's really easy. Then that church does conferences to tell other churches how to do it. But you know what happens? It's not before long that church falls apart and it's a big mess again. It just happens like that. And I'm not saying the church shouldn't do all that we can to make it easy. We should. But here's the deal. I think... God doesn't allow serving to be the easiest thing in the world. I think God allows there to be frustration in serving. God allows serving to be difficult. You know why? Because he wants you to be in that place where you're with another human being who's different than you and you have a personality clash and then he has to work something in your heart to transform you and change you to make you more like Jesus Christ. And he does that in serving. You know why else he makes it hard? Because all of a sudden he wants you to be in this place where all of a sudden you have to serve and give and you see something happen and you realize it's not all about me, but it's about Jesus. And when Jesus laid out the model of serving, he washed the feet of his disciples. He showed us that it's not all about us. And when you serve, it creates this mentality that makes church life and the body of Christ that God wanted to establish operate the way it's supposed to, whereas you are in last place. And God and the people around you are in first place because that's the definition of love. And he wants the people in his church to be loved. And so if you decide you're not going to do this and you're not going to serve because it's not easy and it's not convenient, it probably never will be. And I think in our culture where we quickly raid on Yelp and we give five stars or four stars and we put everything through the view of how it was convenient or not to us, we have to be very, very careful not to allow that to determine what we do with our time in terms of God's church and serving the world. Because if we say we're only going to serve when it's convenient, we're missing the whole point. And I think what God could be calling some of you to do 
is say, I'm going to step out of the easy and convenient and I'm going to go do something that's really hard. Why would I do something that crazy and weird? Because I want to grow in Jesus Christ. And I guarantee you, if you do that and you keep your eyes focused and your heart focused on Christ, you will grow in your life spiritually. You know why? Because God set this whole thing up that serving leads to wholeness. Serving leads to wholeness, that peace, that unity, that harmony of your heart. When you do that and you walk through that and you put your heart before God and you begin to serve another human being that's different than you, that isn't like-minded, where you feel that awkwardness and how is this going to work and I don't know, and you wrestle through that and you keep going through that with your eyes fixed on Jesus, doing it because he called you to, it brings unity to your heart. This is why when people are going through a really hard time, and they say, you know what, I can't serve anymore. i got to stop because I'm going through this hard time. I get really nervous because serving leads to wholeness. And to serve even in the middle of pain, even when it's hard, can bring unity. So I encourage you to look over that card. And there's a basket out as you walk out the sanctuary. There's a box there. You can drop that card in there. Or you can take it, think about it, and bring it back next week. But don't blow it off. Serving leads to wholeness, and serving lifts the community of God to be more like Jesus. Because of the cross, we live differently. Because of the cross, we live in his love. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that when you think of your family, when you think of the church, you see something so much greater than what we can see with our darkened human eyes. You have something in mind as our creator of the universe that we, the creation, can so easily miss. And God, I pray for every one of us right now that we won't be duped by creator, creation feelings that we miss the intent of the creator. So many times our feelings and our wants and our desires can lead us astray from growing into the people you've truly intended us to be. God, let us not be duped by that. Let us not be duped by the culture that says it's all about us and our ways. But speak clearly to us. Guide us and lead us. We give you our lives. And God, I pray if there's any area within us that has put up an arm, a division against another person because of their ethnicity or because they're different than us or because they may have a different viewpoint than we hold, Will you, especially if they're within the church, will you tear that down and will you forgive us and allow us to be people that stretch out beyond our comfort zones, beyond the places we want to live in a way that you dreamed and desired before creation, your church unified. Let that become reality here, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.